Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. You know, when we consider our health, we typically think first of the foods that we tend to eat. I read an interesting post recently. It said, it's sad that eating junk food is so common that eating healthy is labeled dieting. You know, in the articles on the benefits of good nutrition, even those from the CDC all tend to reference the benefits of eating healthy. They have these great pictures of the body and arrows pointing to all body parts that are positively impacted by healthy food choices. You know, to include things like keeps your skin and your teeth and your eyes healthy, supports your muscles, and it boosts our immunities and strengthens our bones and lowers the risk of heart disease and type 2 diabetes and helps with healthy pregnancies and breastfeeding, helps with our digestive system function, and it helps maintain and achieve ideal healthy weight. You know, when you think about these things here, to think that we can choose, actually have control over benefiting all these parts of ourselves is really a pretty cool opportunity. But when you stop and think about it, no one, not even the CDC, seems to be talking about nutrition and its benefits to our third largest body organ, our brain. Well, on my show today is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. His name is Dr. Drew Ramsey. In addition to his psychiatric practice and being the founder of the Brain Food Clinic in New York City, Drew co-hosts Friday Sessions, an IGTV series on male mental health for Men's Health Magazine. He delivered three recent TED Talks, which are very entertaining and really informative, a video series with Big Think and the BBC documentary Food on the Brain. His work and writings, including four books, have been featured on the Today Show, CBS Sunday Morning, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Drew, I want to welcome you to our show today. It's so nice to have you here. Graham, it's so nice to be with you. It's such a, a nice treat for me to sit with such an experienced mental health professional as yourself. So, and oh. hey, everybody listening, it's great, it's great to be with you all, to be, a, yeah, be, be with the mental health family. So thanks for having me. Great to have you here. You know, our focus today is going to be on nutritional psychiatry and your work with the Brain Food Clinic and the ways you incorporate evidence-based nutrition and integrative psychiatric treatments with psychotherapy, coaching, uh, and also responsible medication management. But as we start, what got you personally as a practitioner and in this connection between diet, the brain, and mental wellness? Well, Graham, I think, you know, it starts on a personal level for all of us that I, as an eater, I was already really kind of interested about how food impacted my health, I guess, as an athlete in college. And as somebody who's going to medical school, I was like nerding out back when everybody was a low fat vegetarian. And, and, you know, it's probably known for eating a little strangely and in college and in medical school, even in residency in New York. And, and so I'd been interested in the connection between health and food. And, and a lot of that was focused like, like a lot of people on heart health, on cancer and all that diet, you know, data that began to emerge in kind of the yeah. 90s. A lot of we now know pretty misdirected. And all that said, it, it really had me oriented around food. I also grew up on a farm. My parents were hippies that moved out to rural Indiana and, and wanted to grow a lot of their food and, and have freedom and uh, have fresh air and raise me in that environment. So I, I'd spent a lot of time in nature with food, the complexity of growing it and harvesting it and keeping it alive. We, we were not a hugely productive farm, but what, you know, we, we grow a nice tomato. 
And that, that just stays with you, of course. Yeah, it does. And, and I think sustained me after I left Indiana to go do my residency at Columbia. And while I was there, going back to the farm, you know, on yeah. breaks and for summers to plant or to harvest or just, you know, hear the night song. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just, you really see how much that, that recharges us. Um, especially, you know, when, when we're missing it, living a city life. So anyway, I'll fast forward. Then a bunch of data starts coming out. I'm a resident. I'm eating weird, right? A bunch of data starts coming out of omega-3 fats and depression risk. Uh, there was a seafood consumption correlated with bipolar risk by country. You know, it's these, these sort of studies that really got me curious. And then I think just started me down a path I'm still on of just trying to, as best I can, in addition to just being your, you know, a regular psychiatrist who does a lot of therapy and meds. Yeah. Uh, how can food get incorporated? What can I understand about nutrition and food and communicate that to people that helps them uh, do better if they're struggling with mental health, but also gets us involved in this part that we don't, we don't have a lot of stance, which is prevention. Mm -hmm. You know, if I have mental health disorders in my family, which a, a lot of families do, my family does, like, what do we do? Yeah. You know, what, should I, should I just, do I sit and wait anxious mm -hmm. as a parent, I, which I don't really like. I don't think any of us like, uh, and I don't want to, you know, get in that stance that we can change and prevent everything of excess control, but just, are there things in the data we can do? And there are, yes. right. Yeah. Uh, everything from great studies looking at, you know, college students, uh, two really, really strong studies looking at college students. One of them correlational looking at 10,000 university students over four and a half years and finding it, get this grant between a 30 and 50% yeah. reduced risk of depression over four and a half years for the people who are in the top half of eating a Mediterranean diet. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, so it is stuff like that. Who knows what that's, I mean, that that seems really almost extreme to me. But then when you see some follow-up data, mm -hmm. we're talking to college students about uh, eating a more kind of plant-forward, healthy diet, brain-healthy diet, you know, now there's a randomized trial showing significant impact. So, so, yeah. so in terms of my own interest, it's just sort of the data began to unfold. Yeah. I saw it as a really nice way to talk to the public about mental health. Really good. No, nobody really wants to get together that much, maybe more so now. Right? Things change, especially in the last two years. Everybody kind of needs to talk about mental health in a way that we didn't. So what I like, though, is you're, you're talking about mental health. We can talk about it from a medication perspective. And sometimes that is necessary just to have, you know, brain function, you know, and all the all the pistons firing in right ways, the way they're intended to be. And that's a that's an oftentimes necessary and extremely helpful part for people's lives. Therapy gets to come into play to help folks work through things that are stressful or, or loss related or anxiety related. But you're also talking about we can do a lot outside the therapy office and outside the prescription pad by focusing on some of the nutritional parts of our well-being as well. So if you're talking about your upbringing, you're talking about this, this other dimension of mental health, define for us just real quickly nutritional psychiatry. And how you understand it typically being left out of health-related discussions and why we want to reconsider bringing this nutrition essentially back into this focus of mental health as well. I appreciate what you said about you know both medications and therapy and the important role of that. I think one of the things I'm always really clear with with clinicians, with patients, is that I love all interventions that have some evidence and hopefully good evidence that yes. they get people better. Right. And there's a lot of different things that do that. You know, we all know, you know exercise is a great antidepressant. So, right. but I define nutritional psychiatry 
is, is the use of nutrition. And I define that as food. Some of my colleagues like Durham Harris, you know, they think about that a little more broadly supplementation. But for me, I'm, I'm a food guy. I want to think about what can we eat uh, to optimize brain function? We all have this amazing gift of a human brain. We're out there like searching for something. I'm not sure what, because we, we've got it. <laughs> it's uh, like pretty, it's right. pretty complex. It's very, it's, and it's a little fragile and it didn't come with instructions and no one taught us how to feed it. Right. which seems weird to me, right? If you had, I don't know, if you had like a fancy sports car, you give it premium fuel. But anyway, the definition, uh, the use of nutrition to optimize brain function and to treat and prevent mental health concerns. Yes. Now that's my definition. And I phrase it that way, very specifically to include prevention, which I think is really from a public health standpoint, one of the most powerful effects of this conversation, right? What else do we have that we think, by doing it better, we could reduce the burden of mental health in this country. And we don't have to do anything new. No. We just have to eat food that's a little you know, better for us. So yeah. that's a powerful idea. And then the treatment of mental health concerns, You know, whether you have a, a formal psychiatric diagnosis, a depression or anxiety disorder, let's say, or PTSD or, or ADHD, you eat three times a day. Yeah. And if food is medicine, are certain foods better medicine for you if you have those conditions? Or can those conditions be worsened by certain foods? For example, yeah. researchers recently released a study suggesting or by their analysis, about 9% of the global burden of ADHD was caused by food dyes, caused. Mm -hmm. You know, not to say that everybody who's got ED, you know, in any way to, to suggest that people don't need other treatments, but boy, if you didn't get that message get off of food dyes. If you're a parent, if you're somebody with ADHD, that, that's kind of helpful science because that's you something bet. that you can do. So that's how I define it, Graham. You ask, how is the field struggling with that? Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of different ways. For those of us who are from a psychodynamic background, I'm a very psychodynamically oriented clinician. I, I love talking about the unconscious and dreams and thinking about you know, things that aren't in our awareness. So it's active. Right, in the sense that I'm going to actually think about suggesting or getting excited or being creative or bringing some of my affective experience as an eater into our treatment room. Now, for me as a, a relationally oriented guy, I like that. I think yeah. that's when you really start getting something going. But I just had a woman I've worked with for years, really, really working on her attachment, but also needs some help with food. She just sent me this beautiful picture, first picture she's ever sent me of this, this lovely salad, you know, or I, I work with a lot of young men. I think a guy in college who uh, sent me this great picture. He's visiting a girlfriend and had salmon and this like beautiful sauce <laughs> on the stove. And he's like treating her right, doc. There you know, go. it's just, so anyway, the field, maybe the field resists because that's a little bit too loose or food is a little too primitive. Mm. I think also we haven't had data, right? So now yeah. when I say with full confidence, which I, I didn't say on podcasts, prior to a few years ago, you're not an evidence-based mental health clinician if you don't include nutrition in your practice, period. Agreed. Like there's yeah. no caveats anymore in the evidence. And that's exciting. We couldn't say that five years ago, 10 years ago. There weren't a number of randomized trials. There wasn't the kind of power that we understood mechanistically with things like the microbiome. I also think people struggle to incorporate it because like anything that's new, if we haven't had it, we've been, we've been getting along without it. It's right. not like people listening kind haven't of good been enough. helping individuals with mental health disorders for their right. whole careers. Right. So the idea of how you add it in, that's one of the things in our training that you know, we talk about clinical technique, just in the notion to try and give a framework of, hey, this is how we do it. And I really just started 
with asking all of my patients about food and then over time kind of refine to really think what's helpful for me as a mental health clinician. Yeah. I don't want calorie counts. I want a broad spectrum. Hey, this is what this person eats. But I also want as, as a mental, I'm going to listen. Everybody who's listening right now is a mental health clinician. You listen about food differently. That's right. And, you know, you, you hear the story of someone's food differently. And it, I would say one of the pearls is as a psychotherapist, I was like blown away that you started telling people, tell me, tell me about food as you were growing up. Oh yeah. boy, you're back in the kitchen. They're six years old and they're right. There's food insecurity, or there's lots of food, or there, right. you know, it's it's fascinating. So there's a lot of great information for us in thinking about food, food culture, food history, mm-hmm. how food impacts development, and then how food is a vital sign for self-nourishment. You bet. Right. I you open bet. up your fridge and I just peek in if I wandered in one day with no judgment, just to learn. Yeah. You learn about a lot about how somebody organizes and cares for themselves. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, so the field, uh, you know, hasn't had data. They, there hasn't been an explicit kind of notion of like, Hey, one, you should talk about this, right. For all the right. people in training, listening, how many of your supervisors said like, Oh, that's a great, great job. Yeah. Didn't really understand a lot about what that person was like as an eater. Cause it just hasn't been in our field. So We'll see. Things are changing. I mean, we, I was started doing this dance is I don't know maybe 15 years ago. The Happiness Diet came out 11 years ago. We started presenting at the American Psychiatric Association, and was that like 2014? New colleagues have have been making lots of headway. Uma Nadu at Harvard and uh, Dr. Desai at Stanford. All of the microbiome researchers contributing. Uh, Tim Dynan. This is legitimate. Yeah, these, I mean, it's just and these you know, are, with yeah. the most recent book, I got to inter- I got to interview a few of my favorites. A Roger McIntyre, who's like uh, Roger McIntyre is just his brain is so big. It's like he's a pharmacologist and a, a psychiatrist and a researcher, but just also involved in all kinds of inflammation research. He's just fascinating. I got to present with him at the American Psychiatric Association one year, and then I interviewed him most recently for the book, thinking like I'm sounding a little too juju. Because, you know, as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, you know, diet really modulates things like inflammation in the microbiome. And that has a lot to do with our mental health and our brain health. So we called Roger and he's, and he was like, <laughs> he was like, no, 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 it's really clear. You can see it, see it on the imaging, see it on the data, you interrupt, really mess with three neural circuits when there is a lot of inflammation in the body, right? You're going to end up with some anhedonia in terms of mood circuits, you're going to get a little hypervigilant and you're going to have some brain fog and cognitive fog and sleep. So it's exciting to have the field. And I don't know as much as, as your tribe is a psychiatrist. I mean, I do think that the notion of inflammation in the microbiome and then some of the study, Jeff Miller, who's a, a friend and a colleague at Columbia and a number of other researchers, but I know Jeff's work the most are looking at now imaging activated immune cells within the brain. So imagine you come in, right? Instead of like, you know, us us hoping we're going to get it right, right? Being able to image and understand, wow, like your brain is super, you know, you got something going on. Who knows if that's how it'll be used, but there's been some really specific data he's finding out around brain immune activation and very specific psychiatric symptoms and how that relates to things like the microbiome. So it's, I think it's, it's changing. I think it is changing too. I think I, I love this idea of 
how we can, you know, we talk about different levels of prevention, primary, secondary, tertiary, and more times than not, we tend to be more reactive mm-hmm. to things happening. We're eating well enough, it kind of gets us by until it catches up with us, or we experience something. And now we're playing catch up at the secondary or tertiary level of prevention. But you're talking about these are some things that we can do at a very doable level of being able to do some primary prevention by adding some foods and recognizing the benefits that you're talking about here. And I love the, the encouragement of people appreciating that we eat for reasons, you know, little do we know sometimes, whether it's a cultural piece or the familial piece or it's habit or convenience. I worked with a, a diabetes group uh, at the medical center here. It's kind of, kind of in my earlier training and fellowship and residency. What we found is that one of the biggest challenges to change, and I want to talk about the change process a little bit later, but was that food, particularly here in Hawaii, where I live, is such a cultural part of who we are. Food and fellowship, that's what we do here. Mm-hmm. It brings us together. It gives us identity. There are certain foods that are just off the chart good, but not always good for you. But they're part of who and what we are. And to be able to change some of these things was very hard because for them to change it, it began to impact sometimes part of their identity, part of their involvement culturally or just socially. And so that change isn't always easy, but I, I appreciate what you're saying around in order to make some of these changes, we get to consider some of the things that food means to people. So on that line, when you're working with clinicians and maybe you're training folks or giving talks, how do you teach practitioners, maybe even someone like myself to assess the role of a patient's nutritional habits and considerations choices in their mental health. And as you do the intake evaluation, even in your treatment planning, what do you do to encourage practitioners to incorporate that in? One of the key tenets for me in teaching clinicians is to remind us to adhere to our ethos of being mental health professionals, which is to go in without a sense of bias or judgment. Right. And doing that is different in terms of how people experience us talking about food because everyone else has a, you know, a diet, they want you to go paleo or keto or carnivore or lacto ovo vegetarian, right? And and some people are sure that these foods are toxic and others are sure. So the idea of us being neutral, that we know there's some data around traditional foods. We know the big evil is, you know, not surprisingly highly processed foods. And we know that people are challenged in terms of Mm -hmm. time, in terms of money, in terms of especially our clients, right? Motivation, energy, organization, right? They're, they're struggling with psychiatric symptoms. So initially, first of all, let people know why I want to know, which is not to judge them and shame them. And especially because I'm known for this stuff a little bit, people are like almost embarrassed sometimes to tell me about their diet. And I say, you know, if we're going to work together, I really want to be clear. Like, I don't, I really don't do any judgment. Like I drink root beer, I eat pizza. Like, tell me what you need to hear so right. we can be on the same page here that we're both eaters. Yeah. And I may, I don't know some tricks now. Like I've got a good fish game now, but when I was 30, I didn't know how to eat a single thing of fish other than a little bit of sushi. And, and I think I remember for one of your podcasts, fish for you with the food, with, with, with the fish sticks. Was that right? Yeah. Fish sticks. Right. <laughs> it, was like, it was like rural Indiana and it was just, you know, there was no, uh, there you go. A little tartar sauce. Got your fish was, for the yeah. day. Omega threes. It was, well, that smell, if you're not used to it, I mean, those, those are oxidized omega-3 fats that would smell fishies and we don't want to eat oxidized fats. So, you know, our noses are sensitive to that for a lot of reasons, but in terms of clinicians, I, I think go in with an open mind. I love to hear what people eat in broad brushes. So I tell them why, Hey, there's a lot of new interesting data. And I'm curious if this is one of the tools that we're going to be able to use And also just, you know, tells us us, I use us a lot, (laughs) tells us a lot about what's going on right now. 
Right. And so then you can celebrate things. Some people do great. They say, you know, I really try. I'm eating a lot of wild salmon. And, you know, you can hear when people try and you can celebrate those things, which I think is really important for us in mental health. Like, wow, you're doing a great job. Or if yeah. people are really struggling in the place, a lot of people are with food. Lots of shame, lots of guilt, yes. wanting to lose weight, hating cookies, loving cookies, hating cookies, that we can let them know that we're going to be with them in a different way about that because we're neutral. You know, my patients can be any weight. I'm still going to be your psychiatrist. That's right. <laughs> you know, it, it, and, but if you have some goals around that, I'm in your corner. You bet. You know, I'm in your corner and I know it's something you're struggling with and thinking about every day. And I want to, I'm just curious, like anything, like anything in our patients' lives, every clinician is listening. You just hear a problem and you get curious. Mm-hmm. How can I help? I wonder how I can help. Hmm, what's the person thinking? What's going on? I wonder what paradigm. I wonder how change happens. So anyway, I walk through somebody. I said, walk, walk me through your life as an eater, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then I try and expand. People say, oh, I also have oatmeal. Oh, what's in the oatmeal? Oh, yeah. What else? Well, if you don't have oatmeal in the house, what do you have? Oh, I have eggs. You know, I have eggs like two times a week, right? What, what, uh, what do you drink? It's a big yeah. difference. Oh, I don't have anything. I have black coffee. To I have two frappuccinos. Yeah. And those are totally different nutritional things that could be called coffee. So getting a little more detail again in an open way and hearing about the options, hear about the three meals, I hear about snacks. I kind of hear a little bit about like, how are you feeling? How do you feel when you wake up? Super hungry, nauseous, Mm -hmm. great, sad, anxious, you know, so I kind of try and get in. And as I'm doing that, I'm sketching it down and I'm kind of looking for the food categories that, that we feel are most representative of the nutrients that are important for mental health, right? If you want zinc, magnesium, folate, vitamin B12, omega-3 fats, you know, the good stuff, there's a certain set of foods that have more of that per calorie. And, and I appreciate a lot of people have kind of leaned towards a supplementation route. And I think that is really backfired, right? People say like multivitamin is an insurance policy. It's like, man, it it doesn't look like that insurance policy is working so well for most people because most people are sick these days. You know, and I don't mean that in any judgmental way. I just think that if we treat food as a set of nutrients, we miss the point. We miss the great point that Graham made. You know, food brings us together. Food connects us. Food is, is, you know, every culture we know first via their food. And we have to honor those aspects as an important part of nutritional psychiatry, but also an important part of how we heal with nutritional psychiatry, right? When people are struggling with depression and anxiety, they're not connecting up usually. Yeah. And food is a great way to help them with that. Whether it's a, a thing in, in New York that was great. All this kind of work also got inspired by a farmer in a farmer's market down in the West Village, Abington Square Farmer's Market. Farmer Dave, I write about this in the book. Just he's a great farmer. And I don't know, I was this farm boy living in New York. Finally got to like a tiny apartment downtown with my wife. And, uh, and there was this farmer's market, like right outside the door. Like I could roll out of bed, throw on some sandals and shorts. And, and be with like fresh produce and I'm really all kinds of produce and, oh, just super, super inspiring. But, you know, notion of, man, I, I still am in a little contact with Farmer Dave every now and then. I like that. And I, I still get his newsletter. I know what every, every, every Friday I get what he's, I haven't shopped there at that farmer's market for 10 years, but I love seeing what he's up to. Yeah. You know, I feel really and somehow connected to him in, in, in that way that we connect with people when we share food and talk about food, right? Where are our best conversations over the dinner table? Yeah. And then I think we have challenges, right? Also, unfortunately, I think alcohol has really crept in and come to dominate a lot of like meals and, and, and group conversations in a way that's really disconcerned me as a mental health professional, as a dad, as a man of just, how do we understand that and do something better and, and, and differently? 
you know, as I think about all those great traditions you're talking about uh, in Hawaii and all the great traditional foods, you know, it's also quite interesting the way that, you know, the health challenges there. I've spent a little time there and, and the way that um, certain aspects of, of what has been a healthy and traditional diet have been kind of transformed and transmogrified into something that ends up being incredibly unhealthy for the people who have honored and held those traditions for us for you know thousands yeah. of years. So it's, yeah. it's really, um, you, you were asking about the clinicians. I think that I squeeze in usually my second session. Yeah. I used to try and get in the first, but I, I didn't find I could get enough mental health history. I try to get that in there. And then I gauge somebody's interest. If you don't okay. want to talk about food with me, I'm That's still right. a curious and uh, interested psychotherapist. I still have a lot of other options. I don't want to force this on anybody. Sure. If you are eating a ton of junk food, in a way that's really unhealthy for you, in a way that sounds like it has a lot of, let's say, interesting motivations in it, you know, it's also hard for that eventually not to come up for people. Right? Yeah. Because anybody who's not eating well knows it. And also anybody who knows food a little bit knows, I mean, I eat really delicious food all day, Graham. I'm not like yeah. suffering over here. You know, right. I, I don't want people to think that brain food is... And one of the foods that's on the, the cover of the book is dark chocolate, right? And, yeah. and it's not like a marketing gimmick. It's because one, there's data about dark chocolate, but two, you know, like a lot of the foods in the book, it teaches us lessons, lessons about how these foods have really been dumbed down nutritionally. Yeah. So dark chocolate, I don't know, it's this horrible guilty thing that we, we hide and we sneak and we're not supposed to eat. And it's only for yeah. birthdays or Valentine's day, as opposed to something that it's a real treat. You can enjoy it every day. Every day. And Still it has, some, it has a good iron, positive impact on your brain. Yeah. Yeah. Iron, magnesium, fiber. You're looking for a high quality, good dark chocolate. I mean, the cacao tree is like one of the most amazing and mystical. And if you ever get a chance to go to like a, a cacao farm, it's incredible. So it's a fermented food. So, you know, it's all kinds of really interesting things about dark chocolate. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Are you preparing for a licensure exam in psychology, social work, marriage and family therapy, counseling, or behavioral analysis? AATBS is here to help. We have been supporting behavioral mental health students to prepare for their licensure exams for more than 45 years, working with over 1 million students to succeed on test day and move on to the next step in their career. With products ranging from comprehensive courses to quiz banks and delivered live online, self-study online, and in print, AATBS has test prep solutions that meet every student's needs and learning styles. Visit us today at aatbs.com. That's aatbs.com. And use promo code BHT15 to save 15% off your next purchase. Well, you're talking about these foods right here, and you're talking about the impact both in a a treatment and in a prevention way. And also if we're going to, you know, have the, one of the most important organs that we have our brain, why not give it that supreme fuel that you're talking about? Make that choice with intention. The, the food you're talking about, give us just a kind of a quick skinny on what you're referencing. When you say nutrient density related foods, your mm -hmm. BDNF, and maybe we can talk a little bit about your eight favorite foods, which happened to be on the cover of your book right there. Okay. Talk about those three areas and their impact on the brain. Okay, so nutrient density is the only reason you should ever count a calorie. If you know a calorie count of a food without knowing the nutrient density, 
you're missing the most important thing. Nutrient yeah. density is how many nutrients there are per calorie. So I could hold up a can of Coke, can of soda. Almost every can of soda has about 160 calories, right? About 40 grams usually of sugar for calories per gram. 160 calories in my little can of soda here, a 12 ounce can. If I get a kale salad, two cups of kale, all chopped up really nice, that's 66 calories. I uh, pull on a little olive oil. I don't know, it's probably another 40 or 50 calories. I still got some to spare. What else do you want to put on our kale salad so we can have it have as many calories as the Coke, Graham? Let's put a little, um, well, something like, yeah, I'd probably chop up with me a little red onion in there. So we had a nice little, a nice little kale salad. So they both have 160 calories. The soda brings some sodium and sugar mm-hmm. and really about nothing else. This kale salad, I mean, oh, it would take the rest of the podcast to list all of the cool phytonutrients, you know, just in the kale, like two cups of kale. It's like 268% of your daily need of vitamin C. You've got, I mean, I run these numbers. Like you've just got, uh, you got the vitamin, vitamin A, you got the vitamin C, K, folate, folate right. fibers, phytonutrients, right. so you get all that all for the same things. number of yeah. calories. Yeah. And that, and that's nutrient density. And it's the yeah. idea that if we seek those foods, yeah. we top off our tank with nutrients with calories to spare. And we end up being what is a healthy weight for us as an organism, you know, and, and maybe it's an overly simplistic idea, but what drives eating behavior what drives eating behavior is your brain and your brain's desire to be safe and secure and have, you know, a good number of calories at its disposal and to never, you know, your brain can't go a minute without glucose. If you just turned off all blood sugar, it would be it. So that's nutrient density. Really and it good. leads us to a set of foods. That's why I kind of went into a kale mania and, and had a, I had a little problem with kale for like four or five years. Graham helped me out though. He's good. He like, it's good. I appreciate that Graham. Save me from kale. <laughs> like a, it was session, but you know, it got healthy. We launched national kale day. That's sublimation right there. It went from like sexy kale to like helping people eat more kale. So that was good. And uh, Laura Lachance, the a colleague and friend, a psychiatrist in Montreal now, she and I got curious as we started doing this work, like, how are we going to justify that we're recommending these foods to our colleagues? And, you know, it also gets you thinking like, well, why is, you know, we ask people, what's a brain food? People say like blueberry. It's like, well, why is that? Like, what, what, what? I mean, there are no trials of blueberries on brain health in humans. There's really no trials. It's interesting when you get to that question, like what does make a brain food? So nutrient density is a big part of that. But Laura and I looked at all of the literature and uh, all of the uh, essential vitamins and minerals and asked the question of like, which of these have significant evidence that they are involved in the prevention of depression, right? You don't eat enough zinc as a population, your risk of depression goes up. Um, Or they can be used to treat depression, right? You add on zinc to SSRIs people get a little better, a little faster significantly. So zinc makes the list as an example. We come up with 12 nutrients and we just ask this really simple question. What natural whole foods have the most of these 12 nutrients per calorie? And this is called the antidepressant food scale. It's easy to, um, you can Google it. It's a open source piece of science. And that taught us really about when you create nutrient profiling systems like that, the people who create these systems point out, you know, you, you can't get people at the top, two top things are watercress and oysters. Most people didn't eat these last week and they did okay. <laughs> and so it, it, it's about the food categories. So if you look at the top 10 plant foods, you know, leafy greens are a low calorie, very nutrient dense food category, colorful vegetables, same mm-hmm. thing, you know? Um, if you look on the animal side, right, we saw a lot of seafood, but particularly biofowls, mussels, clams, and oysters make the top five. 
things like fish eggs, you know, change up your sushi order a little bit, get a little more tobiko on there. Uh, it, it, there was some wild meat on there, things like goat, which goat I think mm-hmm. is the third most consumed meat on the planet. I didn't know that, but uh, so it brought us to these foods. And then there were a lot of foods that weren't on the list, foods that I think of as great brain foods, nuts on the list, beans on it on the list, because those tend to have more calories. And also we couldn't count for phytonutrients. So part of the health impact of plants is certainly the fiber and all the vitamins and minerals, but there's some health impact of phytonutrients, these, these molecules that plants have to protect themselves. Some of them, like the carotenoids, beta carotene, we turn into vitamin A, but there's a really complex dance we do with some of these phytonutrients that we're starting to understand. Also, some of them, like the anthocyanins, one of the reasons those blueberries and blackberries probably are good for the brain, they don't have anything to do with the brain. The way that they seem to work, at least according to the most recent paper in Nature, is that they have an effect on the microbiome. Mm-hmm. So it's really, you know. It's, when you're talking like, about the microbiome here too, you're also, also talking about an opportunity that we can help grow and repair our brain. And you're talking about the BDNF around this kind of segment right here. Say a little bit more about that part. Yeah, so BDNF is, is my favorite molecule in the brain. It's brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's a growth factor in the brain. Everyone has it and all of our genes code for it. There are a couple of variations of it. We know, for example, there's a Valmet, it's a 66 uh, little SNP that you, if you have that version of BDNF, there are little, little differences. You get more car accidents, for example. Mm. Uh, so B- BDNF though is a molecule, it does a number of things. Uh, it tells neurons to make more connections, reach out and make more synapses. It prompts the uh, promotion of stem cells in the hippocampus to become neurons. So uh, it promotes neurogenesis, basically the birth of new brain cells, which is kind of new. Like 20 years ago, we didn't know you Mm -hmm. could do that. It's not Mm -hmm. like you grow a whole new brain, but boy, you know, as you're aging, you know, I mean, Graham and I know a few brain cells make a difference. That's Mm -hmm. like us remembering that name or not. So (laughs) I'll take all I could get. And, and they help brain cells that are stressed kind of stay more resilient. So this is what yeah. BDNF does. And then there are a number of things that seem like they promote BDNF. There are a number mm-hmm. of nutrients that promote the expression of BDNF. Exercise promotes the expression of BDNF. We think actually one of the ways psychotherapy works is through BDNF. ECT works. By, so BDNF is this kind of in some way, I wouldn't say it's a final common pathway of all antidepressants, but if you wanted to get philosophical for all of us who are thinking about change and behavioral change, there is no behavioral change without this molecule because there is no change in brain. And if you don't change brain, you don't change behavior, at least in my opinion. And it's a molecule I think people need to hear about in mental health, I guess, particularly as a psychiatrist, Graham, because, you know, everyone's hung up on serotonin. Right. And, and it just, it's a cool molecule, but it, it, people kind of equate serotonin with happiness. And serotonin is a little more of like a homeostasis molecule. Right? Yes. Serotonin is involved in sex drive and appetite and, and cognition and, and certainly mood as well. But there's a lot more we have going on than serotonin. And, and mm-hmm. while I appreciate serotonins, I appreciate the serotonin medications. I, I certainly use those when appropriate. It feels like BDNF is a really hopeful molecule and it helps us yeah. think about our brain in a new science kind of way that our brain is dynamic. I was talking to a patient today. She's like, well, I don't know. Like, should I expect my husband to ever change? You know, like a lot of you, like, do people change? It's like, well, if our work does help people change in whatever way they need to, and hopefully in, you know, uh, really positive ways, again, I, I think BDNF is involved. So it's something we want to be aware of. It's not like I talk about it with patients, but I have an illustration dedicated to it in the new book. And I just think, it, I think about it as the molecule of hope. Yeah, it's really right. nice. If I can grow new brain cells, 
If I can repair my brain cells, my brain cells can reach out, make new connections. It means whatever this is right now that I'm struggling with, yeah, my brain is kind of wired and rigged to help me kind of overcome and learn through it. And that mm. gives me, it just gives me a lot of hope when I'm struggling. Yeah, really good. I, I, I appreciate that. I think there is hope around this. And ideally from this podcast today, folks get to understand that there are some things that they can exercise some control over and have an opportunity to both treat, heal, and grow the part of our brain that can affect so many areas, particularly, I mean, what's more important than our mental health when you think about it and it, as it affects and impacts our decisions, our relationships, oh, nothing. our thoughts. We all know those days when we've got great mental health, we're passing oh, yeah. it on to people, we're shaking hands, we're smiling, right? We're, we're generous with our clients and patients. Yeah. We're curious, right? It's the best when you're in that state. And when you're not, it's, I mean, there's no health without mental health. You can't think about anything else. That's right. That's right. I, I agree with that. I want to, just as a, we're winding down, I want to name real quick, uh, and I want to get to just kind of a final word from you to our listeners, but in terms of your uh, eight favorite foods on the cover of your book right there, kale and red beans, just name some of these for our folks just to kind of get you know, and help them. Uh, like, this is all great guys, but like, what the hell do I eat for lunch? Right? What do we so do? Everybody, That's right. We think in these food categories, but some stand out. We talked about kale. A kale. I also love arugula on the cover of the book. I have olive oil. I want that to be the main oil in your house. Roast a lot of veggies in it. Pour it generously on your leafy greens. It helps you absorb some of those fat soluble nutrients. Want the small fishies in your life, anchovies and sardines. I challenge all of you who are kind of friendly I gotta, with those. I, I got to admit though, pal, that's the that's the hardest one for me to be, to oh, be incorporated. Let's have let's have a little session then, buddy. Oh, let's do it right which now. One, which one? The the anchovies or the sardines or both? Both. All right, so we're gonna go different strategy here. Okay. First of all, your, your anchovies are gonna be a much saltier, right? Yes. Kind of fishier fish, and I think yes. we should, if you want to try and use those, using them in sauces. Like okay. a, like an all kale Caesar is the way I do it, or a romaine Caesar where mayo, mustard. The secret here is lemon zest and lemon juice. Okay, and then drain that anchovy. You should probably like keep your nose away and peel it off, and you know, and and try and fight that feeling we have that things that are unfamiliar are disgusting. Pour off the oil. Take maybe I'd start with two if you're okay. feeling bold, but I, I put the whole tin in there myself. And mash them up, put them mix, mash them up. All these little small bones is one of the reasons they're a great source of calcium. Yes. And then you mix it in with that, you know, mayo, lemon zest. You don't have to have mustard in there, but but you're trying to, in some ways, kind of let yourself just have a little of this. I got it. I right? got it. I think that I think that might be doable. That one's maybe maybe a little tough. The one that I love for the sardines is the uh, I love a pasta con sarde. Because you can cook the sardines in a way that it really ends up this very kind of umami rich dish. Yeah. So what I would do for that one, Graham, is a little olive oil, garlic. I put some pine nuts in there, a lot of fresh oregano. So you're kind of making this little, you know, delicious oily place to put these uh, on medium heat, put in the sardines again, drain them from the tin, mash them down, right? A little bit. So you got these little chunks of meat. Then you're going to pour in a little tomato paste or tomato sauce. Right. So you, you, and pour that over, I'd put them over some gnocchi in it with this kind of thick, uh, it, it's really surprising to me how these sardines in this way don't taste fishy at all. I was going to say you're kind of hiding them right there. I know they're, yeah. I know they're great for the well, long I'm cooking chain. with them, Graham. I'm not hiding them, I'm cooking. That's right. <laughs> so, but just to get back to those like mussels, clams, and oysters, right? Yeah, if any good. of those are things you like, if you haven't been familiar with those or you've been misinformed about those, or you want to learn more about those, that's a great place to focus some energy. Yeah avocados and eggs. I just, I really love avocados as a great snack, a great source of healthy oleic acid, the same fat and olive oil. Um, 
also has this interesting seven change sugar. So, uh, um, and very satiating, right? Especially for, mm-hmm. you know, those of us who are getting older, you're maybe thinking about weight, you're thinking about calories, right? People avoid fats because they have more calories, but it's a big misstep because you eat that avocado and the fats keep you full. Right? Okay. So fats and protein are satiating, whereas carbohydrates usually aren't so much. Other things on there, pumpkin seeds, pepitas, I just really didn't use a lot of those at like your top nutritional source of tryptophan, which as much as I, I do love BDNF, you know, I like making serotonin from tryptophan and, yeah. and from serotonin, we make melatonin. So, you know, and tryptophan is the most rare amino acid in mother nature. So knowing the top sources, I think is important for us. Uh, it, it's in a lot of foods, but pumpkin seeds are a great source. There's actually a study of people using pumpkin seeds, gourd seeds, they called them, to treat social anxiety. There's this little mm-hmm. pilot study. And then uh, the rainbow vegetables, right? So these are going to be, you know, if, if, if you look at my Instagram stories, I'm always trying to impress people with a lot of colors, right? One, because it looks pretty, but two, all those different colors are different phytonutrients, but they yeah. also just mean you know, you're trying to get three or four plants, colorful plants on that plate together. And so those are, I hope foods that, that help, are good. you know, and so we didn't say dark chocolate, dark chocolate, more than 75% is what I recommend in terms of the, all the, you know, the other 25% of sugar and look for something that's just cacao and yeah. sugar, yeah. nothing else. If you want to be even better and healthier, get straight up cacao nibs, or I like the cacao beans. I, I had a big, like got a couple of kilograms of those. I just would nibble on them, especially if you can get them with the husk still on there, because that's been sitting, getting fermented usually, but the cacao and cacao nibs, great, great snack. And then really we didn't good. say kefir. We didn't say any fermented foods. We got to say that, Graham, because it's 2022. You got to say microbiome. You got to say fermented foods. So I'm going to say kefir, uh, kombucha. That's uh, I drink a ton. I swapped out all of my alcohol for kombucha, uh, I don't know, eight, nine months ago. And it's been really, really interesting. I've lost about probably about 30 pounds. Wow. You know, the effect of stopping alcohol, everybody listening Mm -hmm. knows. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's great (laughs) in all kinds of ways. Um, but, but I also have a belief that the kombucha is really helpful for that kombucha. Some of them have like a 0.5% alcohol. There was a way that something kind of fizzy and something to look forward to and something with a lot of different flavor that as opposed to going from alcohol to water, right. Or juice, which I didn't want to do. I had this kind of replacement that's really worked for me very well. So, but the fermented foods whole idea is that a study out of Stanford uh, actually said as six servings a day kind of improves immune function, but also really improves the diversity of bacteria in our gut. And that's one of the major things in terms of like markers. We don't know which exactly which bugs are good for you yet. We have some ideas, but it's not like there's this probiotic that's going to help you yeah. beat depression. And that's yeah. where I think mama nature is taking care of us for a long time. So something yeah, no. to, to drop in there, but I hope that helps everybody again, not, not to be overwhelming, but just like to be curious, you know, some of these foods yeah. I'd never even heard of. Yeah. Now I eat them every, every like kefir. I, I eat, I don't know, five, six times a week, you know, kombucha every day. So keep evolving as an eater is probably the main thing I want everybody to hear. It's like, I think that's a nice, uh, yeah, I think that's a nice kind of closing statement. Evolve as an eater and be open to these things that actually have some real positive impact on the things that we do. And these are something that we can control and contribute to our well being. Yeah. Really like that. The more we all do to feed our mental health this way, really and connect up around this and use the power of food to build confidence, uh, to build pleasure, to build community and connections. It's, it's really great for our mental health in a lot of different ways. Agreed. Hey, Drew, for those that uh, were kind of rounding the bend here, for those that are interested in learning more about you and 
kind of had to get in touch with you in terms of just reading about you, your books. Uh, there's some great podcasts that you've done. Give us some, um, give us some sites that they could uh, find more about you on. No, Graham, thanks so much. You know, I'm, I'm easy to find. I'm Drew Ramsey, MD, sort of everywhere, DrewRamseyMD.com. Um, that's my handle on uh, Instagram and Facebook. The book, the most recent one's Eat to Beat Depression. And, yeah. and uh, that's probably, I would say, of the most comprehensive in terms of really being able to pull together some of the data that also a lot of illustrations and all of my books have recipes. There's 30 recipes, including my pesto formula. So you can make radicchio pistachio pesto, which uh, is just fun to say. And then I think those are the, the cool things. We have this healing the modern brain course that's coming out. That, that's really fun that people should check out. And then for clinicians, we have uh, really the only nutritional psychiatry clinician training. And, it, and it's not just for psychiatrists. It's really for all mental health professionals to go over the data so people can feel that this is within their scope and based on really evidence good. to go over the nutrients. So, you know, a lot of folks haven't had biochem or haven't had some nutrition, just talk a little bit about what they do. And then mostly talk about like how, you know, how the rubber hits the road. How can you incorporate this into your practice a little bit in a way that helps you and, and your patients? So, yeah. And then helps you. The last thing is like, well, we're all fighting, you know, some, some burnout, the stress of being a mental health professional. It's best, definitely best job in the world, but it's a tough job as, as everybody listening knows. And so, you know, that's why it's really a pleasure to talk with all of you all because keeping your brains well-oiled and well-tuned and, and well-nourished, you know, if, if there's a set of brains that, that I could help with that, I, I can't think of a better set because of the ripple effect it has yeah. of, you know, uh, uh, your ability to share this with patients, but also your just hopefully in some ways, uh, you know, ability for this to help you stay resilient and energized. So it's a real treat to be with you, Graham. Thank you well, so I think you've done just that today, you know, for our listeners and those are going to benefit from this. So I, uh, it's been a joy to be with you as well. Really a delight. Thanks so much for being with us today, Drew. Thank you, Graham. Been nice to be here with you. Also want to thank you, our listeners for joining Drew and me today. It's always great to have you with us. Regarding this episode, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all our other podcasts can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. So check out our webpage, triadhq.com slash BHT, and you can explore our archive of podcasts and resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we'll look forward to having you with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.